Thanks, Helen. Well, great to be together. Uh, I've, I've lots of reasons to be pleased to be in church, but uh, one very trivial one is I worked out today it's not Father's Day. I thought it was today, and Phil's told me it wasn't. I woke up this morning a little disappointed, Kathy. I was just kind of wondering, I was thinking, what's going on? There's nothing happening. There's no one mentioning coming around. Uh, so next week. And just when I say I don't care about Father's Day, just anyone in the family, just know I don't really mean it, all right? So next week's got to be big. So just, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, good to be together. Let me pray and we'll dig into the word together. Father, we, um, we are so grateful for what you have done for us in the work of the Lord Jesus. We come uh, astonished at the many gifts uh, of children, of family, of life together, of health, uh, of uh, sustenance. We, we thank you especially for your gift of your own son. And pray this morning, please, that you would help us understand afresh the wonder that you, the God of the universe, loves us so much that you have given him for us. And we pray that that might transform and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things uh, people who do what I do, this kind of speaking to crowds of people, try and find is a catchy way to start, you know, to get your interest and get you engaged. And I want to suggest this morning, uh, the passage itself is its own catch, isn't it? Did you... Were you alert when we read through Genesis chapter 22? What an astonishing part of the Bible. What we have here is that 800 years before the birth of Jesus, that's about the time of Abraham, so three over almost 4,000 years ago, God apparently tells this man Abraham to take your son and kill him on an altar on a mountain that I will tell you to go. Now that is an attention grabber. If you were alert and you were hearing that read this morning. An attention grabber if you're a Christian, if you're here and you're a churchgoer normally, uh, I dare say it's hard for you to kind of hear that and not just sit, oh, ho-hum, because it raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Um, what, do you, what do you do with this? God is asking for child sacrifice. What, what is that with God? What's happening? Is that right? Did he do that? But if you're here today and you're a visitor and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not a Christian, um, I dare say it's an attention grabber for you, which is, what is it with this God that these people believe in? You know, what is it with this book that they read? What is it with this crowd of people? Do they really believe all this stuff and get it? So for you, it's a bit of an attention grabber too. I don't know that I could believe in a God who did all of that kind of thing. You might find it catching as well. It is a striking passage. There's no two ways about it. It, uh, it is a simple passage uh, and if you've got your Bibles, just have a quick look at it with me now. Genesis chapter 22, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Wow. Uh, what, what, what is happening? There's a couple of things I want you to notice before we try and dig into it a little more. The first one is, uh, just very off the bat, God never intended for Abraham to go through with it. Just know that. Because by the time you get to chapter, chapter 22, verse 12, uh, God says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your, your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there was a ram caught by its horns, which verse 14 assures us God had provided. God always had this ram ready for the sacrifice. So God had never intended 
this to go on, to go through with. And it's worth just saying a little bit further to this, that the God that you meet in the Bible, uh, in, in records about his activity in the world that happened back 4,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, the God you meet in the Bible is very different to the gods of the ancient Near East, the ancient world. Um, or more broadly, of course, too. But back in those times, many of the gods did expect child sacrifice, did expect uh, parents to slaughter their kids. Um, and what you find in the Bible, actually, is that God is outraged that humans would do such a thing. So the God of the Bible actually says, no, 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 that is a deep offence to me, that humans would kill their children like that. So just know that about God, the God of the Bible. But you might still wonder at the appropriateness of God even using this as a test. And I would offer just a couple of quick thoughts to say. And there's much more to think here about the ethics of it. But uh, just remember that God is God. It is his world. He is the potter where the clay. And Isaac himself was not an innocent, sinless person. There's, there's more to be thought about, but uh, uh, just hold those couple of thoughts. The other thing I draw your attention to is the nature of the passage itself. And I just want you to look a little more closely. So what we have here is the claim that this account is inspired by God and the way he inspires the author to write it indicates in the very nature of the writing that God knows this is a very strange thing that he's asking for and he is not, he is not rejoicing in it, malicious about it. Let me show you a couple of things. It starts with uh, God testing Abraham, saying to, saying to Abraham. And there's this funny little, uh, he calls to Abraham, Abraham's here, here I am, and then speaks. God gets his attention, and it happens a number of times through the passage, this little device, if you like, where it's kind of like God's going, um, uh, I just want to get your attention. Abraham, here I am. He doesn't just speak, you see, he calls Abraham and the nature of the the command look at verse 2 take your son your only son the son whom you love Isaac you see the repetition your son your only son the son God is aware that what he's about to ask of Abraham is massive and in fact uh, Hebrew scholars I'm not a Hebrew scholar Hebrew scholars suggest the beginning of that little command to take your son starts with a please. There's a little particle, a little word there that has some softening edge to it in that God himself comes gently to Abraham and says, Abraham, here I am. I want you to take your son, your only son. It's big. And the text itself tells us it's big. Even as you go through the passage, you get this same kind of sense as well. Verse 3, you get a whole series of just descriptions of what happens, loads up the donkey and so on. And we know what Abraham's doing, you see. We know what's going through Abraham's mind. But the, 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 the record of it, um, verse 5, his servants don't know. And you, as you hear Abraham talk to the servants, stay here with the donkey while the, you know what's going through Abraham's mind. And there's this pathos about it as you go through the inspired text. Um, Abraham verse, then you get the action again, takes the wood and places it on Isaac and carries the fire and the knife. Um, And Isaac speaks up and says, Father, yes, my son, uh, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? And again, Abraham, the text is telling us that there's this deep thing happening. This is not a trivial God just malicious. No, 
God will provide. And then you get the action again. Abraham builds an altar, arranges it, binds his son, lays him on. The text sort of kind of slows down, with, puts him on top of the wood, reaches out his hand to take the knife. The text, the, the, the account of it, the author, inspired by God, knows that what we're reading is an astonishing thing. And as he's about to kill, slay his son, the angel of the Lord, verse 11, calls out, Abraham, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the, far, on the child. Do, do, do you see, the, the inspired author itself, himself uh, knows, expresses this sense of astonishment about this. Um, it, is an, it is an incredible test to take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Now, if you've not been with us, you, you, uh, well, if you have been with us, you'll know that the nature of the test is even bigger still. If you haven't been, let me just fill you in a little bit. The, um, the nature of the test is bigger still because this child, Isaac, is not just any child, as precious as all our kids are. This is actually a child of promise that's come to a, a woman who wasn't able to have kids for decades, came in her late age um, as a, an astonishing answer to prayer and the promises of God. And this child actually is more than just an astonishing gift to Abraham and, and, and his wife, uh, Sarah. It's an astonishing gift to the world because God has made promises to Abraham that through Abraham's child, which God promises to give them, blessing will come for the whole world. So for Abraham to be asked to give up this child is not just a sacrifice for himself, and it's a deep, deeply sacrificial thing that you get the sense of here. It's a sacrifice of God's promises. What is, you know, Abraham's going, wow, you see. It's massive what's going on here. Now, what's, what is it all about? Well, I think there's a number of reasons it's put here. We're told about it. It's to tell us that God sometimes does test people. It's true. And uh, not to test because he doubts you and wants to, but to, to prove the strengthening of your faith. There is a truth that God tests, um, but I think there's more going on. Um, this is part of the movement of God's great promises through history. I want to come back to this shortly, but uh, God has, been, has made promises to Abraham to bless the whole world, to rescue it from sin and the fall through the child that he gives to Abraham, his offspring. And this is a reaffirmation of that promise you get after these events, verse 15 and so on, where God reaffirms his commitment to his promise that through Abraham's child, blessing will come. It's there for that reason. But it's also there, according to the New Testament, to tell us about what it's like to be in relationship with the God of the universe. It's one of the big reasons why it's there. And this is massively relevant to all of us. I mean, all of it's relevant. You see, most of us are followers of the Christian faith, the person of Jesus. Many of us among today aren't. I want to say that this is relevant for all of us. And let me show you why. You see, what does it look like to be in relationship with God? If I were to sit with you and say, you know, uh, what, what, what do you think is needed to be in relationship with the living God of the universe so that when you die, you are right with him and you will already stand before him? What, what's required? Now, the vast majority of people have some answer to that question, even if they don't believe there is a God. It's interesting, as I talk with people, uh, people go, look, I'm not even sure there is a God, but if there were a God, this is what I think. Uh, Kathy and I were on a, um, a boat uh, some little while ago. Some of you know we, we had a holiday and we were on a boat together. We had another couple with us for a short time during that stint and, um, and we got some... Little did they know what they were coming into. 
And uh, so we had an opportunity to talk a few times about various things. And at one time, I, I asked him particularly, you know, what, um, what do you think you, is needed for you to be right with God if you die and so on? And he had an answer. He said, look, I'm not sure, blah, blah, blah. But he said, I think what is needed is I, I need to be, a, you know, a, you need to be a good person, not hurt anyone, not kill, murder, be faithful to your promises and leave the world in a better place. And he said, if there is a God, he'll have to, that's what he needs from me and that's what I'm going to give him. Uh, that's his answer. Now, is that, that's a very common answer, isn't it? Uh, that, that I need to do enough to earn his favour and surely this little list of things will be enough to earn his favour and I'll be okay. Now, it might be that you're here and you, you don't believe in a personal God, but you have a kind of a spiritual sense of things. You'll probably have some answer of how you connect to the spiritual and it might be along these kinds of lines. Um, you know, how do I be in touch with the spirits, the spiritual, by my care of the environment, by being a person who contributes and uh, a person who tunes in? You, you'll have all kinds of things that you think are necessary as well. Now, in some way, all of that's very personal to each person. But what I notice is a couple of things in common with all the answers. And whatever your answer is today, many of you will have the, this particular feature I want to draw your attention to in common. And it's this. The way we work out the answer is the same. Um, whatever answer a person outside of the, the, the things the Bible comes up with, the way a person works out the answer is typically the same. You, 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 you know, if I were to ask the, the man I was sitting with on the boat, um, how did you come up with that answer? He would have said something like, I thought it up. It seems self-evident to me that that's what he should be happy with. Um, you, you know, the spiritual... Well, it... it that makes most sense to the world I'm in, that it should be so. Um, but what I want you to notice is this. It ends up being us telling God what he should be happy with. It ends up us assuming that what we think about what he ought to have is what he therefore ought to have. Now, as I put it like that, do you see there's any problem with that? We, um, I think as a society in recent decades, we've become much better at working out principles of relationships. You know, I think we've got some insights into how to make relationships work. And I, I, I'll offer one of the things I think we all share in common is that relationships don't work very well when one person in the relationship just assumes they know what's best for the other person without ever asking them. Have you noticed this? Uh, most wives have noticed this. <laughs> um, you know, the husband who just works out for himself what the other person wants and decides, you know, what she really ought to want from me is, is a husband who works really hard, earns lots of money to provide for the family, and that's what she really, you know. And, and the question you ought to ask him is, have you asked her? Have you asked her what what she actually wants from you, whether it is that or not. No, I haven't, and I don't think I want to. <laughs> well, that's a problem. 
And a little actually marriage tip, right? We, we don't do a lot of... But marriage tip, it, it might be worth going home, reflecting on all that's said in the Bible today, but also doing this at some point, sitting down with your husband, your wife, and saying, um, you know, what are some things you would like to see from me more in our relationship? Do you think you could do that? No, no. <laughs> I don't want to hear what's coming. But, you know, that's what relationship. That's how they work, you see. Um, Do you see the problem with much modern human thinking about relating to God? Uh, I, I, I asked the man, okay, you, you, you think what God needs from you is that you just, you be a decent person, you be a great husband, you don't, don't hurt anyone. Ha, have you ever thought to ask him what he thinks of that? Whether that's what he wants from you? Um, that's a good question to reflect on. Now, it begs another question, of course. How would you know what he wants? How would you ask him? Of course. But that you don't even think to want to know what he thinks about it is itself an issue. But, but how would you ask him? Well, it's pretty straightforward, uh, according to the Bible. And I'm aware that this is a stretch for some people. But according to the Bible, the Bible is God telling us what he wants from us. This is him saying, you don't need to be in the dark. If you want to know what I think of how you should relate to me, here it is, do you see? Uh, so that you can know. Now, I, you, you might find yourself wondering about how do I know that the Bible really is God speaking to me? Whether, and, and there's lots to dig into. We've got, there's dozens of reasons why we think that's the case for another time. We haven't got time. Just work with me on this assumption for today. But we run a series called Life where you could come along and we dig into all of these things. But... This episode in the life of Abraham, I take it's recorded for us in part so that God can tell us what he wants from us. And what he wants from us is not that we sacrifice our children. But what does he want from us? I'll tell you. That we trust him that we trust him. That's what he wants. You see, he comes to Abraham and he tests Abraham, not in some malicious, make-you-fail way, but to draw out from him. You see, he, tests, he says, go and take the child, your only child, the child that you love, and sacrifice him to me. It's an intense test of Abraham's attitude towards God and God's word to him. It's a test of what he thinks of God. It's a test of whether he trusts God or not. That's what it's a test about. Will you give up the thing most precious to me, to you, and me actually is God? I mean, this is the child of God's promise. Will you give up the thing most precious to you, that your only son, the son that you love? Will you give him up? Because I've asked you to. Will you do that? Now, what's going through Abraham's mind as this is asked of him? You could imagine very naturally that he's thinking, this is too much. To give up the life of my only child, the child I love. Abraham's not some cold-hearted father. This is the son he loves. To give up the child you said was the key to the future blessings of the world too. 
What's necessary for Abraham to go forward and do what's commanded at this point? What's necessary to be in Abraham's head and heart? I'll tell you what's necessary. Bucket loads of faith in the God who asks him to do it. Just a quick rant on the word faith. The word faith is not some mystical thing. It just means the word trust. You could replace the word faith almost everywhere in the Bible with the word trust, reliance, confidence. It's just the same way of saying bucket loads of trust in God, confidence in God, faith in God. What's necessary for Abraham is to have bucket loads of respect for God, to revere God above all else, to fear him, the Bible says there in verse 12. It's a shorthand way of saying, now I know that you fear me. It's a shorthand way of saying, now I know that you hold me... In such reverence, I'm more important to you than anything else in your life. Now, I know that it's the case. Because you've not withheld your only child. I realise now, I see now, says God, you are more concerned to please me than you are to please yourself. That's the test. You see, this is profound. What's going on here is a deep insight into the mature Abraham. Abraham wasn't always like this. He's had his moments, uh, you know, where he laughed at God's promises, aged as I am, you think I can. But eventually he matured to the point in Genesis 15, verse 6, where he believed God, he believed him. And God says, that's what I want. And he credits it as righteousness. He counts him as righteous with him because that's what he wanted from him. Trust me. And then there were moments of doubt where he lied about his wife because he couldn't trust God to keep them safe. But now, as an older man, he's learned about this God and if God asks something of him, it's for a good reason. That's the place he's come to. If God asks him to do something, as, even as massive as this, there must be a good reason for it. And what matters to Abraham now is pleasing God and trusting God. He trusted God so much he was aware that if, if sacrificing Isaac was what God calls me to do, he could raise the dead to fulfil his promises, says Hebrews 11. He trusts God. You see, this passage bites us in a number of ways. And one of, one of it is, is, one way is, is this, even as we're reading it, even, even as we're watching on, we've not been asked to sacrifice our child, but even as we're watching on to someone else being asked to go through that experience, it raises for us the question ourselves, what place does God have in our lives? Let me show you how this works. Is God really more important to you than anything else in your life? Now, none of us are being asked to sacrifice a child, but even just watching someone who was asked to do it, a massive part of us is saying, I dare say, who does God think he is asking such a thing of a person? What right does God have to ask such a thing of someone? Who does God think he is that he should do that? Is, not, is that not part of what's going on in your head and heart? Now here's the challenge. See, we're in a church and uh, one of the problems of being in church is that we all have to put on this facade as you walk in the door and pretend we don't have those kinds of questions. You know, no, we're, we're just, no, we just think whatever we're meant to think and it's all okay. That's not the church we want to have here. 
What we want to have here is a church where people are honest and real and if you've got wrestles and doubts, you, you, you be honest and open about them and we not shoot each other down. We actually help each other go on the journey of working things out and so I want you to be honest, don't say anything because you, you're not that honest yet, but uh, I want you to be honest and sit there and go, yeah, I am thinking that because I feel it. Uh, God actually asks a man, a father to give up his only son, to stab him with a knife. His only son, the son he loves. How can God do that? Um, Isn't that not part of what's happening in your head and heart? Now, I don't want to give the answer yet, but I just want you to feel the reality of the question, to own it. Yeah, 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 I wasn't, but now I am. You know, for most people in our world, God is acceptable as an idea or even as a being that we might even follow if if he agrees with us on what we think matters most in life and then we'll follow him. And the thing that matters most to us in our world, our day and age, I'm going to suggest an answer... But I think in our cultural context, the thing that we care most about and think matters most is family. Our kids, if you're parents, or your broader family, if you're not parents, or your spouse. They're the thing, family in our culture, is, in many cultures, is everything. And I think for most of us, we therefore say, as long as God agrees that family is the most important thing and that we should prioritise family above all. If he agrees with that and tells me that that's right, I'll follow him. But if he disagrees with me on that, he loses, family wins. Isn't that right? But you see what we've done? We've actually prioritised things. We've made the priorities and our priorities are what we think matters most and we've moved God off. And he's okay for us as long as he agrees with Family is the centre. Abraham completely reversed that. For him, God was first. His commands, his will, his desire was more precious to him. And you're going to hate this. But God was more precious to him than the life of his son. Wow. Was Abraham right to think like that? Well, it begs a series of questions and I'm now going to try and wrestle with them. Who who is God? Who is he truly? The Bible's answer is he is everything. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is life giver. He gives us Every family that you experience, every child that you've received, it's him who knit that all together to give you. He is the saviour. He was the one who wouldn't dare go through with finally asking Abraham to sacrifice his only child because that's too big a thing. But he himself was prepared to sacrifice his only son because he loves you so much. Who is this God? The Bible's answer is not just that we should have this God first in our life, 
But that to do anything else is the greatest foolishness imaginable. It's the greatest offence, actually. To, to receive the gifts from the giver and prioritise the gifts over the giver. To, to receive and be blessed with all that he gives me and then say, thank you, but no thanks. I love this more than the one. The Bible says, what are you doing? Um, now, I get it that if God is just an idea to you, if all he is is this kind of um, wispy spirit being in the distance somewhere, then the, quest, the thought of honouring him above the child that's in my arms, you, you, you're insane to think I'm going to do that. Now, remember, we're not talking literally about sacrificing children. God doesn't ask that of us, just be alert to that. Um, but if God is just an idea... Uh, I, I understand how you find yourself going, there's no way I'm going to prioritise over this child in my... But the whole Bible is written to introduce God to us, to help us see that he's not just a wispy spirit in the ether out there, he loves you. He created you for good, for your joy and his glory and relationship with him. He is generous he give, everything you enjoy is his gift. He stands behind it, having given it to you. The beauty that you experience, the relationships, the richness of the world. He gives us these things. He upholds you every moment. And despite the fact that every one of us has turned against him and paid no heed to finding out what he wants, he continues to uphold us. And then he came to find us in the person of his son, Jesus. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. This is who your God is. Do you know what? Kathy and I watched a movie the other night. Um, it's not a great movie. Don't chase out to find it. Two out of five called The Mother with um, Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence, is it? Lopez, Jennifer Lopez, and um, Jennifer Lopez, and uh, it's a, it's a, she she plays the part of a. Uh, a, a, a an assassin, a highly skilled assassin who has all these enemies trying to kill her. She's pregnant, she gives birth to a child and she knows that if she keeps the child, the child's going to get killed along with her. So she, in a great wrench of heart for her, the mother, she gives the child up to adoption to it, a wonderful family so that she knows the child's going to have this beautiful... and leaves the child with... Um, and the child grows up with an absent mother, with a um, hidden mother, because the mother's actually not absent. The mother is watching out for this child all the time to keep the child safe, always crying and grieving over the loss of the child, but knowing the best thing for the child is for her not to be in her life, watching, you know, and so on and so forth. And eventually they get united because of... Uh, and I'm not going to give the whole thing away, right? Just a lot of it. The... Um, <laughs> eventually they're reunited because um, uh, she does finally get kidnapped by the people who were trying to kill them all and, and Jennifer Lopez has to rescue the child and she, she does all of that. Now, I haven't given the whole thing away. She does rescue the child. She kills a platoon of male soldiers easily, just kicks them and punches them and kills them, shoots them, all they do, and uh, rescues the child. And finally the child realises that the hiddenness of her mother wasn't because the mother was indifferent, it was because the mother was trying to guard and protect her and had given her life for the sake of the child and the child's heart softens and they fall in love with each other and it's a beautiful... Almost, that's not the end, but it's anyway, <laughs> pretty much it. <laughs> um, but now, there's lots of plot holes in the movie, right? 
Um, and, and I'm not suggesting it gets everything right. But what I am suggesting is this. It gives an insight into a principle which is that um, someone can be absent and you, or hidden and you can read that one way or another. You can read the hiddenness and absence of the mother as of apathy and disinterest. Or you can see in this movie what it was, a deeper expression of love and sacrifice for the sake, and so be warmed by it. Do you see where I'm going with this? The reality is that God, in his infinite wisdom, is very often absent, or he is hidden. He's never absent. He's hidden to you. God in his wisdom uh, is hidden to you, so you don't see him every moment and all the time doing what he does. But there are reasons for that. Reasons that have to do with our fallenness and sin and rebellion and the nature of God's work in his world and his purposes for us. There are reasons that are driven by his love. And he calls on us to trust him and see that his hiddenness is an expression of his devotion for us, not his apathy towards us. What he asks of us is to trust him. And he has given us evidence that he is trustworthy by at one point in history coming into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and displaying for everyone to see the measure of his love for us by coming and dying for us. And he says, you can trust me. And if I am hidden, there's a good reason for it, trust me. The fact is God is watching over your every move. He upholds you every moment while you rail against him. He sustains you while you dismiss him. He came and died for you while you ignore him. And he calls you back to himself to come home. And he's the author of these promises that have rolled down through the centuries that he's thoroughly faithful to, to bring to their fruition. He is that God. He is worthy of our greatest affection. And if he calls on you to sacrifice anything in your life, it's because he has a good reason for it. Trust him. Do you see, what does he want? Not what you think he wants, which is to do jobs for him and to earn you his favour, but what he wants is that you trust him and fear him and revere him as the God that he truly is. This is massive. You, you, you see, there's two errors that I see play out in the world around us and in church. And this speaks to both of them. Let me show you this. See, there's one error that says, if I just think it up myself, what I think God needs from me is to be a really good person or whatever I think good is and earn his favour. And this passage says, no, 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 no. The New Testament says, no, 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 no. It's by grace you have been saved by faith, not by your works. God so loved us that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have it. Not whoever earns my favour. God says, no. What you think God wants is not what he wants. He wants you to trust him. But there's another error that plays out in the church. And it's on the left-hand side here that says, oh, okay, it's not by works, it's just by believing. So I can believe in the things of Jesus and then live however I like because I'm forgiven and it's all okay. And this passage 
It blows apart the first one and it blows apart the second. You see, what the Bible actually teaches is that, yes, we're saved by just trusting Jesus. If you, if you come and just put your faith in what God has done for us in sending Jesus to die in our place, his works, not yours, you're saved. Genesis 15, verse 6. If you believe God's promises to save you in Jesus, you will be counted right with him. Done. But then chapter 22 says, this is what a relationship of trusting the promises of God looks like day to day. What it looks like is, you now must live differently. Not to earn it, but because you've been gifted it. And to do otherwise, to just believe and live however you like, shows that you don't understand what it is to have trusted the God that brought you salvation. You see, the whole point is that if I see now God for who he is, the glorious God of the whole universe who sustains and upholds all things, who comes to me and says, just trust me. When I give you a command, trust me. When I give you a promise, trust me. And make that a pattern for your life. You know, God does test us. He tests us uh, constantly. Not because he's malicious and trying to make us fail. No, 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 no. He tests us with the kind of testing that seeks to strengthen us and prove us and deepen us in our walk with him. Now, you don't need to make up tests in some kind of private word that he's given you about what do you think he wants you to do. It's all in the Bible. In the Bible, what you have are commands that are testing. I'll give it to you. Um, Love the wife of your youth. Will you trust God and love the wife of your youth, even though she's now no longer young? Will you love her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer? Will you love her? What is going to enable you to do that? Trust God. What he calls you to do is good. Even if it means you're not happy, trust him and keep his command. He calls on you to to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That's God's word to you. That's a test every week. It's a test that says, will I trust God and do what he calls on me to do or am I going to live my life and just believe and do what I want? No, no, no. If you've trusted God for the great thing of salvation and are now in right relationship with God, the life of faith is to live now trusting him with every promise he makes, every command that he issues. Trust him and be here. Now, I'm not saying that because I think there's a problem, but I just it's a convenient illustration. Be sacrificial and generous. Will you trust him with that? Um, uh, submit to governing authorities. Some of you find that very hard. And God says, you've got to revere me in this and trust me in this. It's a test, you see. And so he gives us context where it's hard to trust governing authorities, to test whether we will trust him and his word or do what we want. Every command of God is a test, you see. But sometimes God does more than give us commands to test us. Sometimes he takes things from us. Sometimes he takes small things like your house, the mortgage repayments we can't make anymore, we have to sell up. He takes it from you. Will you trust him in that? Will you treasure him above your house? 
he might take your health. Now, some things he takes are bigger and he does it with great gentleness. But sometimes he'll take the child that you love, the parent you love. Sometimes he'll take things precious to you and he'll take those away like he did with Abraham. I know this is difficult. He'll take them away and he'll call on you to decide whether you're going to trust him in that. Honour him above everything else. Treasure him as the most important thing in your life. It's a test to deepen your walk with Christ. Do not despise these things. Understand the goodness of God in these things. And see that as he does it, he is drawing you on to have a greater walk with him that sees him for who he is, the creator, the sustainer, the good saviour, who is everything. You have nothing except by his hand. He is most precious. Learn to live that by trusting him in the midst of all things. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we come as people who struggle with so many things. We're so much like Abraham on the journey of ups and downs and we uh, pray your patience with us and pray, please, your gentleness. But we ask too in the midst of all the tests of the commands you give us, the things you take from us, that in all of that we might revere you, fear you and love you and trust you that we might learn to see that you are at work in all things for our good, hidden though it may be, that we might be those that see your good hand in everything, in the mysteries of life even, but that we might revere you above all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.